What does it take to discover something? Perhaps you need a powerful telescope to look for distant planets, or a high-energy and very expensive collider to look for new kinds of particles. But how far can you get with no tools? How far can you get with a mixture of mathematical intuition, a lot of perseverance, and a little bit of luck? This week's guest is the Hungarian mathematician Gabor Demokos. Gabor discovered an entirely new shape. And you might think, well, that's not that impressive. I can just draw a, a squiggle on a piece of paper and, and say, that's a new shape. And you might be right, that might be a shape that's never been seen before. But the shape that Gabor and his collaborators discovered, the Gombots, has an unusual property. In fact, a property so unusual that many mathematicians thought that this shape simply couldn't exist, neither in nature or, or even in the abstract space of mathematics. For me, there are many fascinating aspects to this story. One is the shape itself, which we'll discuss. Um, one, a shape that doesn't seem to exist naturally in nature, although now it's been manufactured. But then there's the quest to find it, which took over a decade. And in relating it, um, Gabor gives just, I don't know, just beautiful anecdotes, but also one gets a feel um, for the frustration that he felt at times. But then there's a whole program of research which flourished um, from the discovery of this shape and from the kind of tools that it employed, particularly the way of um, categorizing shapes by the number of balance points that they have. And this is just something which, if you listen to this podcast, you'll learn how you can name or categorize the trillions of pebbles that you can find on a beach. And not only that, how you can pick up a pebble in your hand and feel its age just by feeling for the number of balance points it has. And this is something universal, something geometric. So this has been applied to understanding um, rivers on Mars and the pebbles there, and also understanding uh, putative alien spacecraft, which turn out to be uh, more likely to be a comet, not to mention turtles. So there's a few loose threads right there. Listen on, and I promise these will get tied up. I'm James Robinson, and this is Multiverses. Gabor Demokos, welcome to Multiverses. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So there's many interesting strands to your research but it seems that they there's a kind of central idea that that they've flown from, which is this notion of a shape, which which many thought was impossible. So many mathematicians thought that there was a shape, which a three dimensional shape that that had properties that that, that just couldn't hang together. You couldn't um, have this shape, not only in nature, but it just didn't work as a as a concept, and so. There were mathematicians who were trying to prove as a theorem that this shape couldn't exist, but then the story turned out quite differently. So perhaps you could tell us a bit about what that shape is, what, what the properties were, and that made it seem that this thing couldn't exist. That's very abstract, and hopefully you can make it a bit more concrete. Well, the, the properties of the shape are rather simply described if this shape this the name of the shape is is the gumbut and um, 
if you put such a shape on a on a table then it will always get back to the same stable position like a weevil and the other equally important or very even more important property is that it only has one unstable balance point so one stable to which it returns and one unstable from which it runs so to say the stable point is very easily visible in an experiment the single unstable point is much harder to see but it can be seen so but that is not a tabletop experiment now this shape it is the ultimate shape because we know that a smaller number, so this has two balance points, as I said, a stable and unstable, and a smaller number cannot exist. That is a fact. And uh, in the plane, so in two dimensions, it was known that the minimal number is four. It is always an even number. And uh, the minimal number in the plane is four. And this fact, so if you take a planar disk and let it, a homogeneous disk and let it roll along its perimeter then like an ellipse then it would always come to rest at two places at least mm-hmm. and between these two places there will be other two which are the unstable points like the ends of the long axis now this was known and uh, the 3D version and this is connected to Another theorem, which is called the four-vertex theorem, which says that a planar smooth curve has at least four extrema of its curvature. So this seemed like a well-established mathematical fact, and um, people were looking for a generalization in 3D. And one possible generalization was that also in 3D, the minimal number of balance points would be four. And this was a big temptation. So as you said, people tried to prove it. It looked like a beautiful theorem. And there was no counterexample known. So nobody has ever seen an object which had less than four. And, um, well, when you are kind of fumbling around, then this mathematics is not just about the proof it is about about the intuition mm-hmm. and uh, there was a strong intuition that for the past few thousand years nobody has seen anything like this it looked like a fundamental thing and if nobody has seen it that probably doesn't exist so people were putting their bets on the non-existence mostly we should uh, say here I as well say- i was just going to say i think one thing people might be wondering is, well, what about the Weeble, which you mentioned very early? But the reason yeah, the that Weeble, has... Yeah, the Weeble, Weeble has this property, as, as you point out, yes. It has the property of having just two balance points, but it has another property. It has an added weight, it which is sitting at the bottom. So if you are admitted to put in weights, then it is very easy to do this. And until now, I, I, I forgot to mention... Oh, I think I mentioned once that... We are talking about homogeneous objects. So the material is completely uniform. And then uh, everything is controlled just by the shape. So the geometry is translated directly into mechanics. There is no additional information. And uh, so people were trying to prove this. And 
with confidence, I can say the people who were trying to prove this were very much more versed in mathematics than I am, probably brighter than I am. But in mathematics, no matter how bright you are, if you are trying to something which trying to prove something which is not true, then you are bound to fail. And the the, the story took a turn when. In 1995, Vladimir Arnold, who was at that point one of the most celebrated mathematicians, and and with good reason, uh, he just offered the conjecture that there could be a counterexample. Now, if anyone else would have offered this conjecture, it would not have been taken seriously. But since he was the man who had the best chance to prove anything about this problem, this was a very, very strong fact. And I was the person who got lucky, and he just told me this conjecture. So that was kind of a personal luck. And there was a, it, case, it was more than... This was what turned the tide. Yeah. I, I was going to say, I've, I, I've heard you tell this story, and... Um... There's an element of luck, but there's also some persistence on on your side to try to talk to Arnold, who was, as you say, just this mathematical superstar at the time. And I think you had to... Yeah, he was. Uh, is it right you had to sort of... You, you, you kind of had to pay to access him, as it were, at the conference. Yeah, yes, indeed. Indeed. So it was in Germany. It was still... Uh, before the Euro. So they had the German mark and I was a young postdoc or something like that. And I got like 60 German marks from the Germans as a stipend to, to come for one week to a conference to which I only went to see Arnold live. And uh, he he was one of my main heroes at that point. So I, I, I saw that he's as a young man, I saw that he's he's a kind of scientist whom I really admired because he he was not just a mathematician; he was a much broader kind of thinking person. He he told that mathematics is part of physics where experiments are cheap, and that was his approach to science. So I I really wanted to see him, and uh, when I got there, I went to his talk, which was given to a huge crowd, and uh, nobody understood the talk, but everybody understood there was a recurrent theme that some quantity was bigger or equal than four. And, and the number four was something everybody could understand. But then I realized that this might be the same number four I have been thinking about. So I was with my friend Andy Ruina and Jim Papadopoulos, we proved the case, the 2D case, earlier. And then we started to think about the 3D, but we just couldn't get a hold on that problem. And I thought that this might be related. So this number four could be the same number four because Arnold was talking about many subjects. But then I could not access him because everybody wanted to talk to him. And as I said, the Germans advertised that if you pay 30 marks, which was 50% of my budget, you can be seated with a celebrity of your choice at lunch. 
And that was this uh, um, uh, lunch, which I still remember. We, uh, I paid the money. I went on a diet, a very slim diet for the rest of the week. And, and I was seated at the same table, but as due to the efficiency of the Germans, there were 15 other people. And every single person wanted to show something to Arnold, so he couldn't eat. And then he just asked at the end of the lunch, what is your result, young man? And I told him there is no result. <laughs> it was so awkward that I wanted to get out. And then finally I got lucky and I still could talk to him. And then he, he knew I came from Hungary because of my badge. And he knew I paid the 30 marks, so he knew I had to have a very good reason to go to that lunch. And so he basically insisted that I tell him what I what it was about. I told him, and then it turned out I did not understand much of this program. In this conversation, was a little bit uh, awakening for me because it, it turned out that I did not understand the program well. And he told me that probably there could be a shape out there, and then he left. And if anybody else would have told me in any other circumstances, I, I wouldn't have paid so much attention. But then I saw that this could be really interesting. And I was digging in for 10 years. And uh, I found many properties of this shape, which I don't didn't know whether it existed, but I gradually I realized that if it existed, it is really a miraculous shape. And then I was, again, lucky because I got a brilliant grad student, Peter Varconi. And then the problem started to converge on a really a nice mass problem. Originally, it was more like a philosophical problem, whether it existed or not, and how to put uh, it, it was very hard to to have grab this problem because there is no algorithmic approach to find such shapes even today uh, with computer you cannot do it and 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 I was even searching among pebbles to find this shape and I couldn't so it was a desperate thing and in these ten years there were ups and downs and in the downs I sometimes I started to doubt whether Arnold was right. Sometimes he was wrong. Most of the time he was right. But then, then we could come up first with a theoretical construction, proving that it existed, but that construction could not be manufactured. And then another year later, we could produce something which could be manufactured. And we, the first copy, which we gave the number number one, we brought to his uh, birthday to, uh, to Moscow. And uh, that was a very interesting event. So we, in many ways, and we gave it to him and we got a lot of feedback. And part of the feed, it was in his style. The feedback was definitely in his style. So he was, <laughs> he was, so basically he told us it was a good job, but now we should start to do something serious. <laughs> so that, that was, that was the main message. But otherwise, he, he immediately pointed out that the, this finding is a mathematical thing, but its significance is probably not in pure mass. It's probably in natural sciences. That, that was his basic intuition. And immediately he told us to look for pebbles and to shapes. And 
At that point, I did not understand again what he was talking about. It took me again a couple of years, and unfortunately, he died in 2010. So he couldn't see the second wave of ideas coming from his uh, intuition, uh, getting into, uh, into realized, being realized. But that proved to be probably more fruitful than, I mean, it, it reached many more people because uh, the Gumbers is rather popular in many ways, but it was not clear at the beginning where this would lead us. And uh, his, his uh, suggestion that, so the number two is somehow hardwired into this shape. And it is a philosophic, not, it's not a philosophical problem, it's a, it's a more physiological problem, how we think about shapes, because the brain is divided into left and right, and the part of the brain which has the linguistic skills and, and, and the numbers and so on is different from the part which has this kind of geometric intuition. And this, as, as a result of this, we cannot speak about shapes. We, we have no, no words for shapes. Um, when mankind is is conquering anything, like an island, the first thing is to give it a name. and uh, Or we discover anything, then we di- give it a name. But if you look at the shapes, there are very few of them have names. We have trillions of shapes around us, literally trillions of shapes. And we have, if I ask anyone, how many names can you give? You can give a dozen names. And uh, that is a big big handicap because if you cannot talk about something that is uh, even in real life if if you are not admitted to talk about something or you are unable to talk about something it is very hard to think about it and then despite landing on mars and all that kind of achievements and having the iphones we are still severely handicapped by talking about shapes and this uh, idea is not changing this, but it a little bit, a little bit, because this gives a way to assign numbers to shapes. Once you get numbers, it is like a name. So numbers and words are basically the same. And you can assign names in many ways. You can assign names in an arbitrary way. You go to the beach and give a name to each pebble, but that is meaningless. We would like to have names which are encoded by nature. So we want to discover what is the name of that shape. We don't want to give it a name. And we have to acknowledge that there are many more shapes than we have names. But still, if we can give a meaningful name to a, to a, to a, to a collection of shapes, that is already a big step forward from where we are now. We have names for some idealized shapes, which I would call degenerate, like the sphere or the cube. Physically, you cannot have a sphere because if you have an error by an atom, it's not a sphere anymore. You cannot have an exact cube. They are ideal shapes, like platonic kind of ideas. For real shapes, we have no names. And 
and this gives you a chance this this kind of idea this 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 started an avalanche because it turned out that you can give it a number the gumbert has the number 2 and then you can talk about other shapes having other numbers and uh, actually it has two numbers one and one so we have a table and then it turns out in each field of this table say 2 2 which is the ellipsoid you can do subdivisions and you can go in and you can do a catalog which is more detailed and then you can dig in even more and you can do an even more detailed catalog this catalog will be never as fine as many shapes you have it will always give you categories but because this Categories are defined by nature. So we are not inventing these numbers. We are taking a pebble, taking an asteroid, taking whatever shape you give me, and we determine these numbers which have been inscribed by nature. Therefore, this is a natural catalog. And these numbers are telling. They tell us where this shape came from, how it evolved, because the evolution of shapes is imprinted in these numbers. These numbers evolve with the shape. Mm. And uh, there are very simple rules. So one very simple rule is that, for example, in an aberration process, the general tendency is to get rid of these balance points. So this number is getting reduced, no matter how you do it. If you do it on a large scale, the statistics is, it starts from somewhere, which I will explain later, and then it gets reduced. So they move, in some sense, they move towards this Gumbert shape, which has the minimal number, but they never get there. So this gives you a kind of a good view, a bird's eye view uh, from a very complicated process, which is universal in space and time. It has been going on for billions of years. So it's a useful thing. So Arnold's, Arnold sparked this whole thing. He was, he was the mastermind. And yes, uh, we were the lucky guys at the right time, at the right place. And, uh, and uh, we tried to make the best of it. Well, I think um, <laughs> you understate the, uh, the persistence. Uh, I mean, we, we can touch we, in on uh, some. Yeah, we were, we were persistent. <laughs> we were persistent. I think... It's been told to me, you know, everyone has everyone has luck, but it's really how many times you roll the dice, right? <laughs> That's what separates yeah. success I, from failure. I, I acknowledge that. Yes, you need to you need to have persistence. Yes, I, I I take credit for believing Arnold for an extended period of time, and then yes, there, and there was a piece of luck. Yeah. Yes. I, I want to. So I want to read back some of the things you just said, because I think this is really, like you say, this is one of the, this is perhaps the bigger idea. Many people will be familiar with the, with the Gombok or the Gombots because it is such a fascinating shape. It's, it's, it's a wonderful desk toy, the way it sort of rolls in such an unusual way, right? Like unlike anything else in nature. But the bigger idea is how do you talk about shapes? And, and, and as you mentioned, you know, whereof we cannot speak, thereof we must remain silent, right? If we don't have a way of talking about pebbles or other natural shapes, we can't, we can't think about them. And 
this idea of classifying them by the number of, number of stable and unstable equilibria, which you say gives you this kind of infinite chessboard, if you like, with at the origin, the gombots uh, at, at one, one. And then from that you have, you know, shapes with one stable, two unstable, or two stable, one unstable. Uh, and in fact, there's a way of showing that as long as you have the gombots, all those other shapes are possible because there is a way of changing, you know, knocking a corner off or, or, or what have you, or knocking a bit of curvature off to to create every other shape from from that. So, but it is an immensely. I, I think I want to ensure that every listener, you know, when they finish hearing this, is able to go to the beach and actually have a way of think a new way of thinking about pebbles. At least we should say the the convex pebbles. So the the ones that don't have any sort of inward curves, which are, and you know, probably about half of pebbles are are, are are convex, and all you need to do is is pick up a pebble and you can you can see quite you can quite easily find the stable balance points by just yes. finding where it rests down and and just looking at a pebble, <laughs> you'll have a very good intuition of where those where those balance points are, which way you need to turn it to to find a balance point, and then to find the unstable ones. If 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 one thinks of uh, sort of an ellipsoid pebble, where like you were saying, it's got sort of this long edge, um, this sort of it, it's rather long and and thin, as it were. Often you can see again, but if if you, if you can't see, you kind of pick it up in your hands and you put it on. Um, you support it so it doesn't fall, doesn't wobble in one plane. And let it within another plane kind of find um, its 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 stable point. Is that is that a good procedure? Have I, or maybe that's better for a, uh, saddle points, which are another form of equilibrium. But um, probably this is easier if if people actually try it. <laughs> yeah. So if you want to do this with a hand experiment, then. It is very easy to find the stable ones, and if the pebble is sufficiently flat, then it is very easy to find the unstable ones either, also, because you stabilize it in the plane of this flatness, where it is very flat, and you roll it around, and in that roll, you will feel there are stable points constrained to that plane, and unstable points in that plane. Now, the points which are stable in that plane, but otherwise they are not stable, they are the saddles, and which are still unstable, even constrained to the plane, they are the two unstable points. So this is not a complicated experiment, and geologists, some geologists are already doing it. On the other hand, uh, of course, for a complicated shape, this doesn't work. And... Uh, I mentioned that there are finer subdivisions, not just the number of these points, but also their arrangement can be found. These are identified by graphs. There are several types of graphs which tell you how these shapes are arranged on the, on the surface of the pebble. And those are really not for hand experiments, but now we have computer programs which if we have a scanned pebble in 3D, then we can tell these numbers. So we, but it is fun to go to the beach and have a look. 
Now you I think I think I, it is for maybe a, a hundred pebbles, but I know you you spent a whole holiday with your wife looking at I think. I mean, spent a holiday with a, with my wife, but you still I still didn't know whether there was a gumbert, and you know this is a mathematical problem seemingly. Yeah. But if you go to the beach and you find a good shape, then you solve the problem, assuming the shape is homogeneous. But most pebbles are well, then you can then you can reconstruct it and and check it. But you have a good chance to to solve the problem by finding a suitable pebble. But I didn't find. And then we did two thousand pebbles. But since we have done many more pebbles, it's 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 my students, mm-hmm. and. Uh, it is really you are gaining a lot of uh, intuition, yeah. And and uh, it is not just about the mathematics. We you learn. So yeah. um, we we did, we, did, we spent uh, days and weeks and months. Um, there I can tell you stories. So in, in, not just here in Budapest, a student of mine went to Southwest Australia. To, to to measure the pebbles. Another two of them went to New Zealand and then somebody went to Puerto Rico. So mm-hmm. we, we participated in, in expeditions basically with geologists to 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 get a feel on this. Because you, that... you it is not just about the mathematics. You want to be sure that the data you are talking about is robust. And that is not you cannot you cannot get any kind of intuition about this without wading into the rivers and creeks and picking up the pebbles and measuring them and comparing the numbers. So now after some years we have a pretty good understanding and we feel that this is robust data. Yeah, I, I think that there is a really important point here that actually we often find that things are sort of discovered in mathematics and then find um, some application within physics later. And and someone comes up with some, I don't know, imaginary numbers or something. And like, oh, actually, this turns out to be really useful in, I don't know, quantum mechanics and all over the place. But this is, there's almost an element of this story, which is the reverse. Even though you didn't find the gone box on, on that beach with your with your wife, who we have to give a lot of credit to as well here for um, accompanying you in this 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 quest. She did not file. She didn't file a divorce, but <laughs> some people might have done this. I mean, we went for a holiday, and I suggested as a social program that each evening we pick up, say, forty kilograms of pebbles at the beach, bring to the hotel, and then classify them. Based on the Poincaré Hopf theorem, this is the Poincaré Hopf theorem, which gives you the numbers, the relationship between these numbers. So mm-hmm. um, some marriages. So this this is a bifurcation point for any marriage <laughs> because it can go two ways. But yeah, uh, so yeah. Uh, by the way, the Poincaré Hopf theorem, I guess that says that relates. I mean, many people will think of that about in terms of hairy spheres and not being able to comb a sphere. But actually, it also shows that the there is a relationship between stable, unstable, and number of saddle points. Yeah. So, so what, which sort of means if you know, you can have this plane categorized in any two of those three variables, and, that, and then you can derive the, the third one. But the point, yeah, I think one thing I've, I've heard you mention is that when 
when you went presented this the, the, the first gone book to Arnold and, and showed him the work that you'd done on it, you were surprised to see that he was so interested in 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 what you'd done at the beach because for you that had seemed like a kind of fruitless endeavor. Yeah. But I think it was I think there was maybe a, a slide where you showed sort of um kind of like a almost like a a set of boxes which represents that that plane a, a part of that plane so you had a a box for one one empty because you didn't find a gone box <laughs> but then you had a box for you know one stable or, or two two unstable and 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 um two stable equilibria and that was sort of filled with pebbles <laughs> like there was a lot in that box uh even that you know which is weird because it's right close you know it's so close to the, the gone box box and then um, sort of to the right and uh, below that box, as it were. So if you think about going to yeah, three stable equilibria and three unstable equilibria, moving away from that point, you had boxes with fewer pebbles. And, and you know, here's some... Arnold saw that as kind of empirical data, I guess. But yeah. he also recognized in it perhaps that there was, you know, an echo of some some kind of fundamental process going on he immediately saw it which i didn't see so i showed this uh, slide as as to illustrate a fun story and to illustrate a major failure so i i saw that we failed and after the talk i i met him in the elevator i think or somewhere and oh after the talk he made a comment about the pebbles which i didn't understand and then after the next day, I met him in the elevator and he said, did you understand my comment? And I said, sorry, I didn't. And then he said, but I enjoyed your talk. And do you know which was your best slide? And, and I was guessing and guessing and guessing. And then I, I guess this one with the pebbles. And he says, yes. And I said, uh, it, was, it was fun. I said, he said, no, that was not fun. That was a mark of process. And so he he immediately uh, saw two layers behind this, and he was right again. We so these these these, these pebbles are migrating in this table, based on a very strict rule, which is a stochastic process. But it is stochastic processes are very well defined things, and they are migrating in this table, and these processes are bringing them randomly. So there is some randomness. It is like Brownian motion. Brownian motion with a drift. Brownian motion would not bring them anywhere. They would just wander around. But Brownian motion with a drift, it brings them into this corner, but almost never does it bring them beyond the boundary of one and one. They don't get there. And we know why. But the whole process is strictly controlled by... Uh, by by this motion, and what Arnold saw, what his eye saw, my eye saw it only three years later, that if you apply this process to anything, then you get a very well defined distribution in the end, which is a which we call a stationary distribution. So you put down million pebbles and you play this game, and you wait a million years. And then you will have a stationary distribution of pebbles in these boxes. And he saw that what we measured was very, very close to that distribution. I, I, I of course, I did not. But then 
after some thinking and some learning, because then he told us, now you have to learn mathematics. Of course, I didn't know what was, how did such a Markov process really work? So I, I had to learn. But after learning, after doing computations, we saw that, yes, this is the, this is the governing this is the governing process and um, again uh, well i wish i wish i wish i could have shown you some later results shown him some later results as well because um, this led to some interesting discoveries so it is not just it's a good feeling to give names as you pointed out it it, it makes you more comfortable but Nowadays, people in science asking for results. Philosophical advantage is not counted as a result. Uh, but we could translate this into some tangible results, which, which the scientific community recognizes as results. So we were working with some NASA people to unlock the history of pebbles which have been photographed by Curiosity on Mars. And based on the current shape, we could backtrack the pebbles and that we could tell, based on the current picture, we could tell how big the pebble originally was. Now, if you tell that to a geologist, he becomes a happy person, or she, and tells you how long the river was. So this sounds like an outlandish question, but they know the, 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 know the gravity, they know the, the kind of frog, they know everything, they know the slope. If you tell this pebble was originally this big, they tell you how long the river was. And that was the question NASA was actually looking at. So it, 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 that, that is something which you can sell on the scientific market. You cannot sell this kind of philosophical Jazz that you give names to shapes and then this is a cognitive advantage and so this this is not something you can actually market as a scientific result. For me, this is very important. But then you have to convert it into things which which society feels it's useful. And we had moderate success with we we had some such achievements mostly in planetary science. This was one example. Another case was this asteroid, this Uamuamua. It, it, it came in, and this is the first intergalactic object ever tracked and observed by humanity. And the first thing they noticed, it is either very flat or very thin. That, that was for sure, because of the reflection of light. And... Uh, Almost immediately, Avi Loeb, who is a very famous astrophysicist at the Harvard-Smithsonian, he concluded that this is probably a spaceship. And even it looks like a pencil, right? Yeah, it yeah. looks either like a pencil or a disc. We don't know which right. of those, but either a pencil or a disc. And, and like an you don't shape. see these shapes in, 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 yeah. in space normally. And every single radio telescope on Earth was directed onto this thing and they were trying to find the little green guys running around and giving the signals. And there was no signal. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I was not there. There is no evidence supporting or either in favor or against this claim. So there is no scientific conclusion. However, 
or theory told us that if you take any shape and you let it travel for 500 million years straight line in the intergalactic space, then probability one, it will be either very flat or very thin. So this is Occam's razor. So it's a very simple explanation, which does not mean that it is true, but it has some appeal compared to the spaceship. And I, again, I have no, I have no firm standing here. I cannot claim that it was not a spaceship. I just claim that there exists an alternative explanation, which is very simple and appealing. And it is connected to a conversation because if you have something which is very flat, it's bound to have exactly two stable points. And if you have something which is very thin, it's bound to have exactly two unstable points. So we are in the second row or in the second uh, column of the table. And as I just explained, this migration of pebbles in this table ends up in the second row and in the second column. So this is some ultimate shape. We, so what we just saw is something which has undergone evasion for a very long time. And in the solar system, we cannot see these guys because if you get very thin or you get very flat and you undergo a slightly bigger collision, then you break. And while the solar system appears to be kind of empty, it's not empty compared to intergalactic space. Intergalactic space is much, 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 much emptier than the solar system. So the chances of getting to these ultimate geometries, which are very thin or very flat, are way higher if you are traveling out there. So in the solar system, if you are just going around in the solar system, the probability is very slim that anything could evolve to this kind of very matured state. But in the intergalactic space, yes, it is a reasonable thing. And um, we think that was one explanation. And again, returning back, so our philosophical theory about giving numbers and names turned into something which catched the interest of very good astrophysicists. People have been reading this kind of note and we got some feedback. So I think it became something which you can call useful, right? Explaining nature to some extent or giving an idea about nature, whatever. I I mean, I think it's fascinating that you can look at the shape of rocks on a beach or the shape of rocks on Mars and say something about the history of those rocks and how, you know, how, what their original size was, how much they'd been abraded. And I think we should make this, um, we should probably just clarify yeah, how this, you know, the, the mechanisms at work here, because we said everything sort of wants to move towards that 2-2 two, two square. Yeah. And it is, you know, it's not particularly fancy. It's it's abrasion. Yeah. So just things rubbing against it's each other. <laughs> it's simple in, in a kind of more or less random way. I wanted to add as well, I I guess the the exact form of the process of abrasion determines whether you end up with these sort of ellipsoid type shapes in in that two two box or these uh long yeah. through long thin sort of I'm gonna I'm gonna say this wrongly, uma 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 shapes. Uma, uma, uma. 
Yeah. Okay. Umamua. Say that one more time. Umamua. Okay. You're well practiced at saying that. And and it's it's as you say the the long thin the sort of pencil type shapes and and, and long and discs um, are quite susceptible to being broken. So if you if you think about pebbles, they're fairly fairly large, and so if you're if it's pebbles abrading amongst each other, you tend to not to get those shapes because a, a collision can fracture sort of a long thin thing. Whereas if you, if it's wind abrasion, then you do get these and you can kind of imagine that you see this in, in deserts where you, I suppose you see these quite long or, or quite um, sharp pieces of, of, of rock. Yeah. Is that a kind of right, more or less correct explanation? Yes, this, this is very good. I did not talk about this yet. So it, it's a size dependent thing. And the curious, so if something is being abraded by objects which are much larger than itself, then the shape would become rounder. If it is being abraded by things which are much smaller than the shape, then it will become more angular, more elongated. What sounds like a miracle though, so these are totally opposite evolutions. What sounds like a miracle though, that, that the number of balance points appears to be decreasing in both cases. Although the shapes, the, the way the shapes evolve doesn't even resemble each other. Mm-hmm. So in one case, things become like more like spherical and in the other case become like, you can get a tetrahedron or you can get a flat disc or you can get uh, like thin shapes. And still, so... If you, there is a number called the isoparametric ratio or the isoparametric quotient, which measures the sphericity of an object. And if something is being abraded by large objects and this uh, isoparametric ratio is going up, its maximum is one, and that is the perfect sphere. And if it is being abraded by small objects, like, as you mentioned, in the desert, a rock is being abraded by sand, or you are an asteroid in outer space and you are being abraded by meteorites, then the isoparametric ratio is going down. So it is completely opposite. But in both cases, the number of balance points is going down. So this this it is really... It is, and that, that makes it the more interesting. So, uh, and if you are... So if you are on a beach and you are a newcomer to a beach, you are, you are a big rock being thrown onto a beach, then initially you are being abraded by things which are much smaller than you are. Then you become smaller. You, are, you, are, you become a peer to them because you are about the same size, and then you become smaller than your neighbors. So this whole thing makes a big U-turn. And anything which is related to classical geological understanding of shapes like like the isoparametric ratio is more or less classical geology is non non monotonic so it either so even if it is monotonic it could go up or it could go down but in many cases it is not even monotonic it goes up and down in the life of one single pebble and if you have anything which is non monotonic 
or it is monotonic, but you don't know the direction of monotonicity, then from the current value of that function, you have no way to deduce its past. But if a function is monotonic, then in mathematics, we say it is invertible. That means that from the current state, so, so, you, can, so you can basically backtrack things if you, if you have a monotonic evolution. And we have no full mathematical proof for this, for the monotonicity, because it is not a deterministic monotonicity. It is a statistical monotonicity. For special cases, you can prove deterministic. And we have good understanding where the source of randomness is coming from. But if you take look at data, data tells you that this is an overwhelming thing. It is going on. So if you measure, if you measure these numbers, they are just going down. And uh, one way to think about this is that if you look at a shape, you, you, you explained very well that if you take something in your hand, immediately you see, unless it has many. So it has many points, you don't see it. And, and a common way to say it, it is a complicated shape. And if you have few points, then it is, you would tend to say, in, in, in a common phrase, would be a simple shape. So this whole aberration process is simplifying. And, and it taking out uh, what was the original character of that shape. It is redressing the shape with new features, which are simple features. And uh, therefore, because this kind of simplicity Achieving simplicity is an overbearing principle when you catch a shape and you, t- you see how simple it is, you can tell how mature it is. It, can, it tells you on what stage it is in this evolution. And Uamuamua happened to be a very matured, a very simple shape. It is not a coincidence that in a podcast, we are in a podcast, but we can talk about the shape of Uamuamua because it had such a simple shape. It right. was either like a disc or like a pen. If it had been like a very complex shape, we could not talk about it. Right. Yeah, and that, as you say, it, it is striking that these very different, they're shapes that we can talk about, but discs and ellipsoids look to us very different or um, pencils, discs, and ellipsoids. And yet they all fall within this same 2-2 box. Um, and yeah, it, it seems that was a revelation to geologists, geomorphologists, who before would have, you know, using this isoparametric ratio and, and other things to classify shapes and would have given very different classifications to the various shapes falling within that box. But as soon as you apply this other lens, this this other language of talking about things, you actually see that they're all following the same process when when talked about in the language of equilibrium points. So yeah, that that is really striking. The other thing I wanted to to mention was, yeah, this this idea of shapes becoming more simple. And I was I was curious if if you've ever thought about this in terms of uh, kind of entropic terms and how each box seems to be like a kind of uh, macro state. So, in, you know, one of the ways of thinking about entropy uh, is obviously you have 
how many different sort of microstates fit within a particular macrostate. And if you have lots of different ways of making something that sort of in that coarse grained way of talking about things is the same. So the classic example is lots of different ways you can arrange something to have the same, you know, volume and temperature and, and so on. Then, then that is uh, a high entropy thing. And if it's very hard to make that macro state, that, that, that high level object, like if there's only one way you can arrange things, then it's very low entropy. So I, I, I suppose we could say in some ways the sphere seems very low entropy because there's only one way you can arrange stuff. There's, there's only one thing in that, in that box, if in it if we even think of it as being something you can put on this plane. And the gone box as well seems to be quite low entropy. Uh, although, as you say, you don't, there's no kind of computer way of generating all the different gone boxes. Yeah. Is there something, is that something that can be categorized? I, I don't have yes. a strong intuition on this. Yes, yes. Uh, so one can, I, I mentioned earlier that there are these boxes which you mentioned, and inside each box there are small boxes, mm -hmm. so subcategories. So they're like the microstates and the, the large boxes, the, the kind of microstates. And yeah. and but it is somehow the further you go from the gum box, the more microstates you see. Uh -huh. Yes, and that that is a fact. So that we know, and in fact, it is exponential. So if you go out in in uh, in uh, in two two, you just have two microstates, and then as you go out and increase the numbers, and uh, you get more and more microstates. Uh, I I don't want to say bad numbers, but I kind of remember one number. So if we say that s plus u equals nine. So we have we are on a diagonal, right? Then I think altogether we have over seventy thousand microstates already, and uh, that so in this sense it it's uh, and and yes in if if you converge to the corner this this number of microstates is dropping radically next to the gumbok in two one and one two. There are only one micro state, which I would call a micro state, and uh, these uh, states, these micro states, they are uh, they are they are characterized by graphs, very simple graphs, by the way, and uh, the way when when things get abraded, these graphs are also evolving, and the way they evolve, they evolve by things which mathematicians love. They they evolve by face contraction, so there is a graph and it it loses its face face right as, okay. as it as it converges. So yes, one can one can think of this in this manner, right. and there is another manner in which you can bring in entropy. If you just look at the abrasion where you are being hit by large objects, then the shape is evolving towards the sphere. And what happens is uh, it is like uh, the heat equation, 
but in a geometric way. In the heat equation, you have an object and you insert heat sources and then you let it dissipate. And then heat, after some while, it converges to uniform heat state. Now, the same is going on here, but heat, and heat is a conserved quantity. So the total amount of heat in the object remains constant, but it becomes more and more uniform. So it is an entropy thing. Now here, curvature is replacing heat. The Gaussian curvature of any object which is simply connected is constant. It is 4 pi. And if you look at a polyhedron, then it has no Gaussian curvature anywhere except at the vertices. So this would correspond to an object where you have point heat sources. And the equation, what it does, it is smearing out curvature. And when curvature is uniform, this, conver- this corresponds to the uniform heat, it is a sphere. So, yes, people have written, it is called curvature entropy. And for some special case, curvature entropy would evolve also in a monotonic manner. And people have written about this. So this is probably along the lines which you suggested. So this is one way to think about entropy. And the other thing is about graphs. But in both cases, we come back to the concept of simplicity or complexity. Yes. And it is uniform. It is uniform, at least in the statistical sense. In some ways, it's it's striking, though, that things evolve to, to a lower entropy state. That, that's sort of the, the opposite of a physicist's intuition. But of course, there, there's probably other ways of describing the entropy here. It's a kind of slippery... Yeah. Well, and, it is and a slippery thing. You, yes, you, you can look at it like this or this, but I think what we should notice, there is an entropy concept and there is a monotonicity. Yes. Now, whether yeah. you look for entropy or negative entropy... right then this is just a binary question. We have an entropy concept and we have a monotonicity. So your question was spot on, yes. Yeah. There's one, um, I wanted to make sure that people, I I do, the heat equation is really interesting here, but, uh, and so maybe we we can come back to that. But I, I wanted to make sure that everyone has a, there's one model which you've given for this process, which I really like, is I think, whether you're a mathematician or just someone who uses soap, <laughs> you're, you're going to know this model. And it's in terms of, um, I mean, I, I think you know the one I'm referring to, so I'll, I'll let you talk about it uh, in terms of a kind of a cubic or a rectangular bar of soap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you, take, if you take a rectangular soap bar, which is a, like a, a cube, then and you wash your hands, which you should do, then you will notice that the shape of of the bar will change. And it will not change in a self-similar manner. So it will not remain a rectangular shape. It will become rounded. And as in this process, as we just mentioned, things change. Uh, The volume changes, the mass changes, the angularity changes, but there is one thing which stays constant, and that is the integral of the of the Gaussian curvature on the whole surface. 
So that remains that remains constant, and that means that initially all this curvature was concentrated at the vertices, at the sharp vertices, and it was absolutely non-uniform. In mathematical language, we call this Dirac deltas, where 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 are the vertices for for curvature? All the curvature was there in eight Dirac deltas, and then afterwards. It gets smeared out, and uh, if you are doing it very carefully, the hand washing, you are lucky. You get to a kind of a spherical thingy. Mm-hmm. Now, this is very interesting analogy, and it is not just a folklore thing. It's more than that. You can actually write down these equations, so you get something which is very similar to the heat equation. And uh, just to tell you a curiosity. We were talking about the mass over curiosity, but now I tell you some different curiosity. In the heat equation, one can prove that if you insert a heat source, the heat will change in the whole object instantaneously. And this is not physical. So heat is propagating faster than light in this model. And this is, of course, an artifact because this is a linear partial differential equation. Linear models tend to have kind of funny aspects. Now, the curvature dissipation model we are talking about, the aberration model, is a highly nonlinear equation, which can be linearized. But it's very difficult stuff. I don't know much about this. So this is very technical, hardcore geometric PD stuff. There are a handful of people on the planet who who work on this. Now, one of them is Richard Hamilton. He's he's very famous. He's a great mathematician. And he got credit, partial credit, for the solution of the Poincaré conjecture. So Gregory Perelman came up with a solution, but the solution was based on something which Hamilton has invented, which was called the Ritchie flow. And um, Perelman refused the bunny and the prize and everything. Uh, Hamilton got some credit, very well-deserved credit. So he is one of the great geometers and, and PD people now. Believe or not, when he invented the Ritchie flow, they, they were in four dimensions, of course. They were out there. But to flex muscle, they did some experiments or they did some kind of exercises in lower dimensions, in 2D and in 3D. And Richard Hamilton himself wrote a paper about the shape of worn stones. And this is. Uh, needless to say, it's a sheerly brilliant paper, but it tells you something which is really interesting. If you are if you are diligent enough to dig into that paper, it is not a bad time reading, but it is a, something exceptional. So Richard Hamilton tells you that while the heat equation has this property of infinite propagation speed, the curvature flow does not have it. It has a finite propagation speed. And back to the soap, if you do it carefully, buy your soap, start to wash your hands, and you will notice that after a finite time, maybe small time, 
the middle part of the flat sides will be still completely flat. So curvature does not propagate immediately to the total surface. It takes a little bit of time. And that was a revelation for physicists because now it resolved this puzzle. What does the heat equation, why does the heat equation tell us of infinite propagation speed? This was the answer. Because it's linear, and this is the nonlinear equation, and now we have a finite propagation speed. I think this is a beautiful, a small bit, a beautiful how mathematics is contributing to, to physical understandings. And, and it is about the, the SOAP analogy, which you mentioned. Anybody can test it. Yeah. And I think it is, I mean, I don't understand enough about the Poincaré conjecture to know if this is a good intuition or not, but it, it does seem like there is, you know, a reason why. There's an interesting analogy, at least, between the Poincaré conjecture and, and pebbles, right? Oh, yeah, well, yeah. The Poincaré conjecture is in a higher dimensional space, as you say. It's essentially saying, and this was an unproven conjecture until Perelman, um, using some maths from Hamilton, uh, proved it uh, uh, a, a few years ago. So 10 years ago, more than 10, 10 years ago. Okay. So it'd gone 100 years unproved after... Yeah. Pankarai had said, okay, every, if I get this right, uh, every kind of surface in a four-dimensional space where you can you can take any loop and collapse it onto a point, it, if you have that property, you can morph that 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 surface into a into a three sphere, into a three sphere, so a sphere in that uh, four-dimensional space. So in fact, the Poincaré conjecture in general sense was living in several dimensions. So it was okay, not just, and not just, the three. just to just, we don't, maybe we don't, <laughs> I, I am not an expert on that, but what I can tell you that it was proven in steps and in each dimension, the person who proved it got the Fields medal. Right. Okay. Yeah, one of the, one of these people was Stephen Smale and it went on and on and on. And Perlman was the last. So it was the most difficult part. Right. Uh, okay. And then he finally nailed it. And to do that, he needed a tool. And basically, Hamilton invented the tool. And the tool was a horribly complicated geometric partial differential equation. That that was a, the tool, the hammer, which, yeah. which Perlman needed. And that equation... If you write it down in two dim- in three dimensions, it is the governing equation for the equation for pebbles. It is yeah. not something analogous. It is the equation. Yeah, and so that, that makes is, sense, I, right? Because you're, I mean, in 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 the high, you're morphing the whole proof is to try to morph something onto a sphere, and that's exactly what's happening, you know, with the pebbles. They're trying to get to a sphere. Exactly. So, Exactly. Yeah. So it is it is the, exactly the equation in the case when the pebble is being hit by large right. pebbles, then the Ricci flow restricted to three dimensions, which is a Gauss curvature flow. This is, this is a Gauss curvature flow. So we have an object, and each point is moving along the surface normal inward with a speed proportional to the Gaussian curvature of that point. So that is a Gauss curvature flow. Uh, that is the governing equation for abrasion by large abrasors. This was found. So the general case, it was not clear how this fitted into this huge picture until Hamilton and Perlman came about. 
But people were trying to do this. I mean, the first person to wrote down this equation was uh, Fiery. And then it was generalized to different kinds of operators. But but the big picture, the, the geometric picture, became apparent when these guys started to work on the Poincaré conjecture because then they started to prove miraculous theorems about the curvature flow in two dimensions. Mm-hmm. And then they didn't do much in 3D. One exception is this, this paper of Hamilton when there is a hand-drawn sketch of an abraded pebble. And Hamilton writes, I wish somebody would do this on the computer or in a lab because then I could see it. Uh, we, we often claim, tend to say that mathematicians are just out there, yeah. but this is not always quite true. So they sometimes they have a good intuition about the physics as well. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. It, it I guess I I was really um I love that quote from Arnold that maths is a part of physics where experiments are cheap. I'd never heard that before, but but the it sort of runs in reverse as well. You know, clearly maths can learn something from physics. And I know oh, you've yeah, put a lot of pebbles in drums. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. It, it, it goes both ways, yes. Yeah. And, and yeah, and, I mean, and the, if, the heat if, equation... If you have these people, I mean, if you look at these people, Arnold, maybe Hamilton, I don't know Hamilton, but in case of Arnold, I know, I mean, I have talked to him three times. And I know that his mind was racing back and forth between physics and maths. And... He picked uh, the bits from here and brought it over there and going back and forth. If you go to an average mathematician, he expects you to bring a problem which can be solved by the part of mathematics he knows. That, that is a natural thing. If you go to somebody like Arnold, you bring a problem and he creates the mathematics uh, on the fly to solve the problem. So it, it, it is a very different view. And as you pointed out, mathematics can learn from physics and 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 the other way around. That 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 is a very healthy yeah. <laughs> kind of dialogue. I, I know you're fond of the quote from Galileo, which, um, by the way, Julian Barber, who was a guest on this, loves this quote as well. That uh, uh, the, the language of nature is is mathematics, and its symbols are, I think, is it triangles and, and circles, and and yes. uh, and then the final piece of that quote, which is just really seals the deal. It's like, uh, and if you don't have those, you're in a darkened labyrinth. You're not just in a labyrinth, but someone's turned out the lights, so you're really lost. But again, there's those two aspects. Like that quote has the two ideas in it. The one being that you can learn about mathematics by reading off nature, right? You can uncover the symbols of that book by looking at nature. But then, of course, you can play it the other way and you can do pure mathematics and discover some symbols that you then go out and find in nature. Um, But it's so curious that the the Gombok, for instance, is something, you know, that, that doesn't seem to, it's one of those things where it was inspired by nature, but actually doesn't exist in nature. Yeah, that is nicely put. That is nicely put. Let me make a few comments. So I, yes, I do like this quote and it goes back to an earlier part of a conversation because Galileo says a lot in this quote because he not only says that nature is written in the language of mathematics, the book of nature, but he specifically says that this is about shapes. And 
as we started off in this conversation, we, we discussed that we don't know. I mean, we have a very limited understanding of these shapes and that may be a global handicap. I mean, if this is true, if this, this hypothesis is true and nature is constructed in a language which relies on shapes, then we have a very limited ability to understand it. There are many directions in which you can see this, that geometric objects pop up at, at string theory or wherever. So geometric objects or, or Plato's theory of the elements, uh, which was which could be discarded as as a uh, like a like a myth, but as you know, Heisenberg and or contemporary Frank Wilczek, they were both kind of advertising this theory, saying that it has some vision because it says that matter is matter. Ultimately, matter consists of objects which which have symmetries and uh, which are identical. So at the core of the things, again, we see a geometric idea. I don't claim that everything is geometry, but what I feel is that geometric ideas pop up in a very broad uh, range of subjects. And what I definitely know that our, our ability to grasp geometric objects is is limited, and this might be a reason why mathematicians, part of mathematicians, prefer algebra. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I think possibly Julian Barber might claim that everything is is geometry, which um, I think he probably would. We're sort of running low on time, but there's one just on this idea of how do you classify? You know, nature seems very, very detailed and hard for us to give names to and so yeah we, we just have these these platonic shapes we've discussed one of the ways that that you can talk about shapes but i know that you've worked there's another thing there's another idea i want to introduce of yours which is around counting uh sort of faces and um the number of faces per per for each vertex yeah, could you kind of outline that, even if we don't have time to go into all of the, um, the yeah. details of it? I think it's just such a nice idea, and that will give listeners one more tool in their in their box. Mm-hmm. It's a simple idea. So you go to any park or you your yard, front yard, backyard, and you grab a handful of crushed rock, which can be seen all over the place. And you notice that these shapes are angular shapes. They are not smooth. They have edges and vertices. They look like polyhedra. They are not quite polyhedra, but they are kind of polyhedra. And then uh, you kind of approximately count uh, these numbers, the number of faces, the edges and vertices. And if you do this again persistently, we have done it persistently, and you take a big average, then you find that the average number of faces is six, the average number of vertices is eight, and the average number of edges is 12, which is exactly the numbers of the cube. And uh, this was the element Earth uh, in Plato's theory. So he said Earth is a, Earth is consisting of cubes. But what we found is that this is true in a Platonic sense. Plato was always looking behind things, and he said that 
there is this there is this uh, analogy of the uh, of the cave where, where you where the prisoners see the sh- shadows but they cannot see the real object so in the platonic sense these shapes these these crushed rocks are just distorted images and if you look at with the naked eye you just see many different shapes but if you look with the eye of your mind you take the average you see the ideal shape which is a cube and this is a pretty universal thing there are exceptions there are processes which produce fragments which don't abide by this rule but on earth and in other planets in many cases this is what we see so uh, you have to be able to fit them together and the way they fit together on average they give you these cubic averages now again we have a multitude of shapes zillions of shapes but we can make a some relatively simple statement whether or not plato knew this it is way beyond my pay grade so i i don't know whether he knew it but let us look at it like this if you go to a psychologist she or he will tell you that your mind is averaging out every five seconds something so this is a very standard thing what we are doing we are looking around and we are averaging it is beyond doubt that plato's mind was probably slightly better than the average mind i think this is a safe thing to say now he was walking these beaches he was looking at these things is it possible that his averaging brought him some intuition i don't know but uh, it is certainly tempting to believe that maybe this theory has some quantitative and even it is not it was not he didn't know this he certainly helped us to find this simple fact this is a very simple fact but it it helps to again to talk about numbers so the cube has six stable eight unstable and 12 saddle points so 26 balance points if you look at crushed rock on a broad average it would have 20 odd balance points not as much as the cube but almost in, in the same range and if you go to the beach you find that most pebbles have six like the ellipsoid so nature on us on other planets now and for the past few billion years everything was happening between the numbers 20 odd and 6 that that was the process things were climbing down from the numbers so this is the start of the process nothing has more than that so we start at at that and in that range at 20 so the cube and the gombok are standing like two brackets which we don't see actually in this process we don't see perfect cubes unless you look at crystals but in crushed rock you don't see the perfect cube and you don't see the gombok either but these are the outermost things and although we don't know individually the fate of every shape for the mind it gives a little bit of support to know that this whole process which is a very very broad thing it is happening within these limits within these brackets and 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 then this helps to 
maybe to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I think this is, it, it, it certainly does. And um, I'm reminded of something that Harvey Brown, a philosopher of physics, once said about um, the film 2001. He said, what's so strange about that obelisk? And it's because it's so, it's like a perfect obelisk, right? It's got mm-hmm. these perfectly flat platonic sides, if you like. And so that's, you know, it's it's an elongated cube, right? It's one end of the bracket, and that's why it just doesn't look natural. And I, I do wonder if Kubrick was to remake, you know, come back from the dead and make a new <laughs> two thousand and one, would it yeah, have a gold yeah, bracket? Yeah, right? I, I I I looked at this uh, movie, of course, not just once, <laughs> several <laughs> times, and yes, this occurred to me that the fact that uh, a cubic object was featured there. Uh, Maybe it was not a coincidence. So the cube has a central role, you know, thinking, and this has several reasons, and this might be one of the reasons that it is in front of our eyes in nature in a in a kind of a in a kind of a non non immediate or not non obvious way, but it is on display, mm. and this is the, in some sense it's an ultimate shape. It's more ultimate than other shapes. So maybe Stanley Kubrick had this intuition, or maybe he was reading Plato. I don't know, <laughs> but I certainly like the movie. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, it's just so—it's immediately recognizable that this is something that's alien, right? This couldn't have been produced by nature. Yeah, and I, and I, yeah. So it's, it's yes, but because it's it is not—it uh, could have been Ico's a head-on, but it being a cube is being something which is. Just, just outside, yeah. Just yeah. outside nature, and yeah. uh, again, we can argue whether Plato knew or whether Kubrick knew, or they were just having this intuition. So, I don't think it matters actually. It just matters. That, so the the mind is working in a very complicated way, and uh, and uh, Poincaré, of whom we talked today, he was not just great mathematician. He was also a very good writer. He he wrote some real, he was eloquent writer. And he wrote some good books. And in one of his books, he's talking about how the mind is working. And his understanding is that the geniuses are not basically different from the smart people by being having more brain power or something like that. But they have a better kind of channel of communication with the subconscious, and uh, and he thinks that in the subconscious the large amount of thinking is done, and some people get these pops, and this there is evidence because many people have experienced that while going to sleep or waking up you get a flash. And that is where your subconscious is still there and and, and it is communicating with the conscious mind. And Poincaré is telling us stories about his from his life. And it was obvious that it's some sudden flash. And he says it is not a heavenly insight. It is just from the subconscious. And we tend to know that brilliant people tend to be sometimes a little bit unstable. And... uh, if it is true what Poincaré thinks and the subconscious is freely communicating with the conscious mind, and then it is not a miracle. 
that they are a little bit less less stable. So we don't know about Kubrick, we don't know about Plato, but we know that both of them were attracted to the cube and um, they were not the only ones. Picasso was also attracted to the cube. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. And Marcel Breyer was also attracted to the cube. So there were some people attracted to the cube. And um, maybe there is something to it. Yeah, we, we dream of these impossible things or almost you know possible, but beyond what we see. So yeah, I, I think that, that's, a, that's a good place to, um, that's a good point to, to, to conclude on. We, we need to dream more. Yes, yes. Dreaming, dreaming is a good thing. And uh, thank you for uh, for your questions. I mean, um, you wrote in in some cases more than I did. In particular, thanks for bringing in this movie. <laughs> I, I, I I have been thinking about this, but I not now. It was in my subconscious. But you wrote it in, and I think this is this is a very good touch. I mean, many some people can connect to this much better than to partial differential equations. Yeah, I will. <laughs> I think that that may be many people. But uh, yeah, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, James. 